and learn what does it look like to live with open hands with those things. And so what we've been saying is that kind of just praying this prayer together, God, would you help us understand what it looks like to live as people with open hands who are, who are generous like you? And over the course of this series, we've had over 100 families that have made, have, have made some commitments to the four-month giving challenge that we've talked about a number of times. We've also taken the time to learn a set of verses from 1 Timothy uh, t- together. And I want to ask you to go ahead and pull out your outline and flip to the back. What I'd like to do is, is for, one, for one last time uh, this series to read these verses together. Uh, it's the series scripture memory passage at the top of the page there on the back. Let's, let's read this together. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And that's what we want to do. That's, that's what we've been talking about this whole series, is we want to be people who take hold of the life that is, that is truly life. And so wrapping up the series this morning, our goal is to, is to summarize some of the things that we've, we've talked about, to summarize what we've learned about how we can uh, worship God with open hands and then celebrate at the end of the service today by taking communion together. And I think it's fitting that we're wrapping up this series as we're approaching this uh, Thanksgiving holiday this week. Um, because at least in theory, Thanksgiving is a time where we intentionally uh, take, take time out to be thankful for the, for the things that God's provided for us, for the people that God's provided for us in our lives and to get great sales at various stores. Um, so what I'd like to do as we dive into the outline this morning is I just want to take a minute and pray for us. So would you bow your heads and, and join me? Father God, I thank you that you promised to be with us. And I ask you this morning uh, to be with us. I pray that, that we would uh, be open to hear from you, uh, maybe in some new ways, uh, to learn new things about who you are and who you invite us to be. And I know uh, everybody in this room comes from a, a different place, uh, is at a different point in their journey with you. And God, I just pray that, that today, each and every single one of us uh, would, would hear what it is that you want to say to us today. So we invite you uh, here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and open your outline. Uh, pull that out and turn into the, to the, the first page there. We're talking about today, we're talking about what it looks like to worship God with open hands. And the word worship is one that gets thrown around a lot, especially in church. Like a lot of times those two things go together. We think of worship. So I thought what, what I'd like to do is, is hear from you guys. What are some words that you would use to define worship or describe it? Like, what are some of the the things that come to mind when you think of worship? Singing, okay. Right, we had a worship team up here, that kind of thing. Yeah, what else? Dance, is that what I, I'm sorry. Is that what I, dance, okay. Not with me, it's not. but. (laughs) But yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What else? Glorify, okay? Yep. Praise. Trust. Anything else? Community, okay. 
giving, surrender. Yeah, those are all great descriptions of what worship looks like. And when we talk about worship, we're talking about this idea that that praise is happening, that, that adoration is happening, reverence is taking place. We're honoring someone or something when we worship. And we're, when we're at church, we know that we're, we're taking time to honor or to worship God. But in our lives, worship takes place all the time in one form or another. We tend to orient our lives around whatever it is that we worship. And we, we, we've talked about this before, but we all worship something. We can't not worship. Like, it's just part of, we were designed to worship. And so the difference is, is what it is or who it is that we, that we place our worship, where we place our worship. And so there are all types of things in our lives that compete for our worship, that we're tempted to give our worship to, to revere or to adore or to honor or to orient our lives around. And one of the things that we've talked about in this series in a number of different ways is that money is one of those things that is a temptation to become something that we worship, to orient our lives around getting more of it or as much of it as we can or uh, to make it be something that we, we, we try to get so we can achieve a higher social status or to be more secure or to have more control over the things that are happening in our lives or maybe to, to be, just be happier and so on. And, and we've talked about how in Scripture, both with Jesus as well as with a, a number of the other writers in Scripture, they invite us to something different. They invite us to a, a different way of living, to thinking differently about money. They say basically that, that money it in and of itself is a, is a fine thing. Like it's, 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 a, it's a fine thing to have. It isn't bad. But if that's, if that's one of our top pursuits, if, that's our, if that is our top pursuit, if that becomes the object of our worship, it causes us to become less of who God created us to be. It, we end up living less the way that God designed us to live, and we actually become less and less human as the, in the process because we're misplacing our worship. From the very beginning of the, the, the human story, we see that God created us and designed us to worship him, to make sure that he was the, the focus of our worship, and that as we put him in that place in our lives and we keep money or whatever... <laughs> The, the, the other things are that tend to compete for that worship, as long as we keep those in their proper place and keep things as, as they should be, we have the opportunity to live as he intended us to live. Or as the verses that we were just reading a few minutes ago say, we have the opportunity to um, take hold of the life that is truly life, to live the way God actually intended us to live. And so as Christians or as people who have made the decision that have said, hey, we're, we're going to follow Jesus with our lives, we want to live the way that God created us to live. And in order for that to happen, we know that our worship, our, our adoration, our praise, our reverence needs to be directed to God above all other things. And that is a challenge. That is a constant challenge and a struggle. And it's something that, that Jesus was constantly point, putting in front of his disciples and challenging them with. And so the question that we're asking today is, where does generosity and worship, where do they overlap? What is the relationship between those two things? How do, we, how do we worship God with open hands? What does it look like, and what are some of the ways that we, can, that we can get there? So the first blank in your outline is this, is that we worship with open hands when we discover the relationship between generosity and joy. When we discover the relationship between generosity and joy. Uh, in the Bible, uh, there's a part in the, 
the, uh, called the Gospels, which is four, four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in those four books, they are the primary books in the Bible that talk about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you ever want to learn about, uh, about Jesus, a great place to start is in one of those Gospels. And in, Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 19, we find this story uh, of, of Jesus and, and, and a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a story that if you've grown up in the church, it may be one that's familiar to you. Uh, if you, if, if you uh, have ever been to, like, when you were a child, if you went to Sunday school, it's kind of a popular story. There was a song that went along with, with it that some of you might know that I'm refusing to sing this morning about Zacchaeus being a wee little man and so forth. Uh, but this is a really, a really great story that illustrates this, this concept of, of generosity. And I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke 19. Uh, or it's right there in your outline as well if you just want to follow along there. But it says this. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was not a popular guy. Okay? He, was not, there were, he did not have a lot of fans. He did not uh, get a lot of Christmas cards from people in his community. He did not have a lot of Facebook friends that lived near him. Like, he was just not a very popular guy. Uh, he was a part of a group of people that nobody liked, the tax collectors. All right? and that's, and if, you've, if you're familiar, familiar with Scripture, you, you, you find this in several places where a lot of times tax collectors and sinners are like grouped in this one group. There's like tax collectors and sinners. And so there's this, gr- this group of people that nobody really liked. And they were, they were disliked, especially Zacchaeus was disliked, not just because they took the taxes that people owe, which nobody likes to pay taxes, right? They, they took the taxes that people owe, but then they would also sort of just take a little bit extra from people. And because they were the only ones that really knew what, was, what taxes they were, what the amount was that they were supposed to get, they would just kind of take a little extra, and as long as they were faithful to the government to get what the government needed, the government at that time would just kind of turn their head and let them uh, steal and cheat people out of this, this extra money. And so in the case of Zacchaeus, people were very frustrated because this is basically how this guy was living. And not only was he doing this, but he actually got wealthy from doing it. And so he's this, he's this rich guy, rich tax collector guy, who, who a lot of people just despised because he was making all this money from cheating people. And so in this story, Zacchaeus, the greedy, cheating tax collector, hears that Jesus is coming through town and he decides, hey, I want to go check this guy out. And what we don't know is uh, maybe he had heard stories about uh, some of the, the healings or the miracles that Jesus had done. Or maybe he had heard that this guy is just a, a magnet and a great communicator and he wanted to go listen to hear what this guy was all about or, 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 or whatever the, the reason. We don't know exactly what he, 
why Zacchaeus wanted to go. It just says that he wanted to see who this Jesus person was. And so he headed out and tried to find a way to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And it says here that uh, in the story that Zacchaeus was a very short man. How many short people do we have in the room today? Okay, it doesn't really matter. I just wanted to know who thought they were short. Um, but Zacchaeus was this guy. It says he was very short. And I tend to, when I picture him, for some reason, I picture Danny DeVito. Like, this is who I pictured Zacchaeus. Somebody in first service said to me they pictured George Costanza. So whatever helps you with this story, I don't know if either one of those will distract you or what, but that's who, kind of who I picture. But anyhow, it says that Zacchaeus was short, and in order to see Jesus, what he did was he ran ahead. He got ahead. So there was probably this crowd following Jesus. It was probably had a, a little bit of a feel of like a parade of some kind, right? Following Jesus. And, and he ran ahead of that whole crowd. And it says that he went and he climbed up into a sycamore fig tree because Jesus was just passing through, so he kind of knew the path that Jesus was going to walk. So he went ahead and he climbed into this tree and got situated. Now, this is an example of a sycamore fig tree. As you look at this tree, what are some of the things you notice about it? What are some of its characteristics? Bushy, okay. Say that again. Short, okay. Branches like seem to hang down towards the ground, all right. Easy to climb, all right. For you, John, could you climb that, you think? No, not anymore, right? Yeah. Hey, what else? Anything else? All right. Why would this be a, a tree that Zacchaeus might choose to climb? Because he can hide in it, right? Absolutely. Well, because he's short, right? The branches are low. That's part of it too, right? George Costanza. Uh, yeah, the branches are low, so he could climb in it, right? It's dense, it's bushy, so he could hide in it, right? He wants to get, he, he wants to, he, there's a crowd coming with Jesus. Here come all the people that hate me along with Jesus, right? So I want to get up in this tree, I want to find this, I got to hide, I want to get, get away from these people. And so that's what he does. He runs ahead of the crowd, he climbs up into this tree, and tries to get a spot where he can kind of peer through the branches, not necessarily be seen by the crowd, but get a glimpse of Jesus to see who, what is this what is this guy all about? What is, what is he like? And so Jesus gets to this, it says that in the story that Jesus got to this spot somewhere, probably down just in front of this tree, and it says that he looks up at Zacchaeus. He looks right up at him, and he says essentially, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down from that tree. You and I are going to hang out today. We're going to spend some time together. We're going we're to get together. In fact, I'm coming over to your place. Right? So, the, so that's what Jesus essentially says. He comes up, and that's, that's, what, he, that he, that's what he says. And now, as is typical of a lot of stories with Jesus, when Jesus says something or when he does something, people in the stories oftentimes are just like totally blown away by the things that he said. Either they're shocked or they're surprised or something unexpected happened. And so in this case, that's definitely true because for Zacchaeus, he would have been surprised, first of all, that Jesus would have even seen him up there, right? Now, we don't know how Jesus knew he was up there. Maybe it's just because he's Jesus, he knows every, whatever. We don't know why, why Jesus knew he was up there. Maybe somebody from the crowd spotted him and started throwing stuff. We don't know. I'm adding to the, to the story. So we don't know why Jesus knew that Zacchaeus was up there, but Zacchaeus was probably surprised that Jesus would, would notice him. Secondly, he was probably surprised that Jesus knew his name, right? That Jesus would even know who he was. And then he would have been extremely surprised that Jesus would have said, hey, we're going to go hang out. Like, that was not what Zacchaeus would have expected. That was never in his, as he was playing out in his mind this day that was ahead, as he was thinking about going and running up ahead and, and catching a glimpse of Jesus, hanging out with Jesus, having Jesus come over to his house, was not something that was a part of the equation. And yet, it, it, it's what happened. So Zacchaeus would have been surprised. And then we see also here 
that the, the crowd around him was, was pretty surprised as well, right? They were, they were, this was an unexpected thing. They were, not, they were not expecting this to happen in this story. One of the things that was unexpected was that Jesus decided to stay, right? In the beginning of this, the story, it says that Jesus was just passing through Jericho. And then as he gets to Zacchaeus, it's almost like he says, all right, you know what, I'm going to stick around. I'm going to stick around. So the crowd expected him to just be passing through, and he stuck around. I think the crowd was, number one, surprised that he was even talking to this cheater, this liar, this scumbag, this tax collector, that he would even talk to, talk to him was something that was very unexpected for people. And then we see in the story that they actually were getting upset for the fact that, wait a second, he's going to go hang out at his house? Like, Jesus is going to go hang out with Zacchaeus. He's going to take, take this guy who's done all these things to us, and he's going to go spend time with them, it says that the, the people saw this and began to mutter, he's got to be the guest of a sinner. Like, doesn't Jesus realize who this person is that he's going to go hang out with? Doesn't Jesus realize, Jesus has been saying all this stuff about um, oppression and, and giving to the poor and, 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 and caring for the needy and the sick and healing and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus is going to go hang out at the, the house of the one guy among us that's been stealing for us for years and has gotten rich off of it. Like, doesn't he realize that as he goes into this house and spends time with this guy, like he's going to be defiled because he spent time with this sinner, this, this tax collector. And so in the story, we see that suddenly people's, Jesus starts to take some of the, the heat that, that, that Zacchaeus would have had. He started taking that from the crowd. Now, uh, the, temptation, the temptation is to read the story as, as if everything happened right then, like it was just all in one setting. But actually what happened is, there's a, there's a little bit of a break in time here. It says that Jesus called him out and said, I'm headed to your house. That Zacchaeus came, came down and then welcomed him, which is basically kind of the way of saying that they went, they, at least we think they went to a, a new location, to Zacchaeus' house. So they made his, their way to his, uh, to his place, and that's where the rest of the story would have taken place. And so back at the house, something Something happens, right? Something happens, clearly. We don't, we don't know how it happened. We don't know what words were said. We don't know what discussion ensued. We don't know exactly what led to it. But in the end, Zacchaeus says what? He says, look, Lord, starting right now, starting right now, I'm going to take half of the things that I have, half of the stuff that's mine, and I'm going to give it away to people who need it. Starting right now, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give away half my stuff to the people who need it. And, he says, and then he says, and, and you know what? The people that I've cheated the people that I've stolen from, I'm going to give back to those people. I'm going to make restitution with them. Not only am I going to give them back the amount that I owe them, but I'm going to give them back way more than what I owe them. I'm going to give them back four times what I owe them. So here's this man, right? This Zacchaeus, Danny DeVito, George Costanza, whatever. This guy, he's despised and he's hated by his community. He's a cheater and a liar, and he's hiding in a tree hoping to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus notices him and says, hey, I want to spend some time with you. I want to sit down. I want to, I want to come to your place for dinner tonight. He accepts him as he is. Right there in that moment, he, said, he, he accepts Jack, Zacchaeus enough to say, I'm going to come spend some time with you. They spend some time together, and what happens? Transformation. Transformation happens. The man who was selfish and greedy starts to become generous and honest. The man who was despised and hated chooses to take some steps to reconcile with those that he's wronged. The man who is undoubtedly lonely and fearful and rejected from his peers meets Jesus and begins to move toward community, healed relationships, generosity, and joy. 
And, what, and I love this. What does Jesus say at the very end? What does he say about the situation after Zacchaeus has this response? He says, Today salvation has come to this house. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was saying in that circumstance, he said, look, this is why I came. This is why I came. This is what I'm here for. I love this. This transformation that's happening in Zacchaeus, this is what I'm all about. This is who I am. This is what I came to do, to seek and to save the lost, to seek and to save those who are lost. There was something about Jesus, there was something about meeting Jesus that changed things for Zacchaeus. There was something about Jesus' acceptance of him, Jesus' willingness to engage with him, to come, uh, to come and enter his home despite the anger of the crowd around him. Something about him sitting down and having a meal with Jesus that moves Zacchaeus from a hated man who steals and hoards things and is isolated and hides in trees to somebody who gives more than necessary, who gives more than what's required for restitution and does so, as we see, with a new sense of freedom and a new sense of joy. There's something about generosity. When we think about this topic of generosity, there's something about generosity that increases our joy, that grows our joy. There's something about taking what we have and choosing to be generous with it that makes us more human, that makes us uh, more the way God intended us to be, that makes us take hold of the life that is truly life. There's another verse in Scripture there that's in your outline that says this. It says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves it when our joy and our generosity overlap, and they often do. They often do. There is a, there is a definite relationship between generosity and joy. So a good question to ask yourself if you think about this, uh, and you, you may want to write this down, a good question to ask yourself is, in what areas of my life is there a lack of joy? Where, where, where am I lacking joy? And is there a way that greater generosity could help? Is there, is there any chance that greater generosity in my life might lead to more joy? And I'm not talking just about, again, think outside the realm of just money, but think outside, think, think in terms of giving of myself giving of my time, giving of my, my gifts, my abilities, my words of encouragement, those types of things. In what, ways, in what areas of my life do I lack joy? And is it possible that, that, that involving generosity, that bringing some generosity in could help with that? We worship God with open hands when we discover the relationship, like Zacchaeus did, between generosity and joy. The second point there in your outline is this is that when we, uh, we worship with open hands when we, number two, discover the relationship between generosity and trust. Between generosity and trust. So there's a relationship, clearly, between generosity and joy. There's also a strong relationship between generosity and trust. Jesus would often, uh, in, in teaching his, his listeners, his followers, his disciples, when he would teach them, a lot of times he would use uh, stories or parables to try to illustrate some of the, the, the truths that he was trying to communicate. And in one, at one point, he told uh, these two very short parables, word pictures, to his followers. They're right there in your outline. Uh, it says this. It says, The kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus talking, The kingdom of heaven is like t- treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, and there's that word again, he went and sold all he had 
and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Have you ever been so passionate about something in your life that you were willing to sacrifice almost anything for it? Like you were willing to give up almost anything for that, that one thing. Um, as I was thinking about uh, some of those things in my life, there were some, some funny things. Like growing up, I would, it was pretty much He-Man figures was a big thing. I would sack baseball cards. There were some things like I would give up anything for those types of things. As I got older, I, I was thinking about some of the relationships in my life. And um, uh, my wife, Mel, it was actually my first girlfriend. Uh, we started dating when we were, when we were in high school. And uh, that, she was somebody who, say it was like it's past tense, but yeah. Uh, where I remember that just this in, in this new way but that I had never experienced before, this was a relationship that I was willing to, to give up anything for. Like, I was willing to sacrifice a lot. I can remember sitting down. Now, get this. This is going to blow you away. So we used to write letters to people. Um, there was a, yeah, there was a, there was a time where you actually sat down and, like, hand-wrote letters and, and put them in the mail like you do bills. You put... The, some people don't pay bills in their mail either. Well, okay, fair enough. Uh, but I can remember this. She and I lived about a half an hour apart and didn't go to the same school and that kind of thing. So we would, every week we would be writing letters back and forth. And I can remember just the, the, the time and energy and thought that I would put into saying the right thing and, and making sure that, you know, this, that type of thing. I can remember making uh, mixed tapes of like fa- <laughs> our favorite songs and, you know, most of them would be fun and then you'd tip... You trickle one in there that was about, I love you, you know, like a romance, whatever, that kind of thing. And so I remember taking time and energy out and sacrificing some of that because this relationship had such value. Um, and obviously, as we're married now, so in, in a marriage, there's obviously in that relationship, there are things, there are sacrifices that happen all the time. It's part of the deal. It's part of what makes marriage, marriage. Um, now, as a, as a parent of my son, Jacoby, I've learned whole new ways of what it looks like to have to sacrifice uh, to to. to for somebody else. And, I, and, and there are some days where I'm not necessarily wishing the sacrifice was a little less, uh, but there are so many days where I have the opportunity to sacrifice and, 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 I, and I, in the midst of that sacrifice, I come to a new realization of, of how sacrifice is, is so closely related to this idea of relationship. How sacrifice and relationship are tied so closely. They're, they're, so, they're so much a part of one another. And one of the things that Jesus says over and over again and shows over and over again is that in, in our relationship with God, there's a similar thing that happens. And so in these, in these couple, of, uh, a couple of parables here, he, he starts talking about this. He's saying to his listeners, basically, look, when you catch a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, when you get to know what God is, is, is really like, who God really is, when you get a taste of who he is, he says, you're going to give up everything. It's something, it, he, he's, he's worth giving everything else up for. He's worth going all in for. He's worth selling everything else and going to that hidden treasure in that field and buying that field. Like, he is worth that. He says, other things seem important, the things that you value, the things that you worship now, but they can't compare with the kingdom of heaven, with what it's like to be in relationship with God the way he intended it to be. It's like this merchant who has all these pearls and he goes and he finds this one, the best pearl he could possibly fathom. So he sells everything he has. He sells all those other pearls just so he can have that, that, one, that one pearl, that, that pearl of greatest value. Jesus says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
That's what it's like when, when, when your relationship with God is, is the way that it should be. When, when things are happening, when you're, when you're living the way God intended you to live, when you, when you get to experience what that's like, it's worth going all in for. It's worth the sacrifice that it takes to get there. And when it comes to, open, to worshiping God with open hands, when it comes to being generous, Jesus was constantly challenging his disciples to go all in. He was constantly peeling back layers where one day he would tell them, hey, you need to go all in this way. And then they would struggle and they would stumble and they would falter and they would fail. And and it would be something that over and over again he said, hey, it's time to go all in. It's 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 worth the sacrifice to go all in. And for those of us in this room today who are followers of Jesus, we've been talking all series long about the fact that Jesus invites us to that very same thing. We talk about worshiping with open hands that's what, that's what he's talking about. He's, he's saying, this is something worth sacrificing for. Like, once you get a taste of who God is, he says everything changes. So some of the questions we've been asking is, are, are we willing to go all in with our time? Are we willing to hold our time with open hands before God? The, the, the time that he's given to us and say, God, I, I want this to be yours. I want you to show me how you want me to use this in a way that brings honor to you. Will we choose to be generous and and go all in with our talents? Will we use the gifts and abilities and passions and the unique personality and quirks that we all have and say, God, I want to hold myself before you, who I am, who you've created me to be, and I want to offer myself. I want to go all in as that person uh, and, and hold myself with open hands before you. And with our possessions, with the things that we have, the, the, the things that we own, the, the money that we've earned, Will we, will we come before God and say, God, I want to hold that before you with open hands and say, help me see how you want me to use these things that you've provided for me to live the way that you've called me to live. That's what we've been talking about this whole series. That's what the, the challenge that, that has been put before us. That's what it looks like to worship God with open hands. But in order for us to do that, in order for us to get to the point where we're, we're willing to, to, to say that to God, we have to have trust, Right? Like, trust is the piece of that, that that's so key to making that happen. We have to trust God. If we're going to go sell our possessions in order to buy that field where that one treasure is, um, if we're going to go sell all of our stuff and all the other pearls for that one pearl of greatest value, we're going to need to take a risk and say, God, I'm going I'm to put these things that I'm trying to control into your hands. We're going to need to trust him. If we're going to be generous the way God invites us to be, we're going to have to trust him. There's no way around it. So a good question to ask ourselves with this whole idea of trust is this. In what ways does my struggle to be generous, with, to my, in what ways does my struggle to live with open hands, in what ways does that stem from my struggle to trust God? Where does my trust in God and my ability to be generous overlap? Where do I see that in my life? We worship God with open hands when we recognize that there's a, a huge relationship between generosity and trust. The last point, the uh, third point there in your outline is this, is that we worship with open hands when we, number three, discover the relationship between generosity and surrender. Between generosity and surrender. Anybody try to give me a definition of surrender? Can you raise your hand too? Great. Not all of you, just one. Be fine. Definition of surrender? 
Okay, giving up. Absolutely. Anybody else? Yeah. Releasing. Yes, absolutely. So it's this idea of, of relinquishing control, of giving up control of uh, or possession of something that we, that we consider to be ours, that we, that we have or have possession of. And each of the stories that we talked about so far today deal with, with this concept of surrender, right? We have Zacchaeus, who uh, was in, his, in that story ended up surrendering his wealth, surrendering his pride, and probably, most likely, surrendering either his, his profession or, if not his profession, at least the way he was performing his profession. Uh, and in those two parables we, learned, we just talked about were stories of surrendering all that we have for this one thing of greater value uh, that Jesus was illustrating about the kingdom of heaven. When we're generous with our time, talent, or treasure, we're relinquishing control of those things. We're, we're, we're surrendering those things. Every act of generosity involves giving up something. It involves surrendering. And the cool thing is, uh, when, we, when, we, when we look at Scripture, we see that we serve a God that doesn't just tell us, hey, you know what? You uh, created humans. Um, you really ought to be generous. Like, it's really something you should do. If you're not going to do it, I'm just going to be mad at you. Like, God doesn't, that's not, that's not who God is. God actually doesn't just say, hey, you ought, to be, you ought to be generous. This is something you ought to do. This is something you should do. He says, look, I'm generous. <laughs> that's who I am. I'm I'm a generous God, and I created you with my image, and I want you to reflect that image back to me and to the people around you. And so generosity, that's just part of the deal. That's just part of what it looks like to reflect me in your life. And we see that, that, that generosity of God. We see that, that, that uh, character quality of generosity perhaps most clearly when we think about the cross. When we think about the surrender of Jesus on the cross. In the, in the Old Testament, which is the, for, uh, for those of you guys who aren't, aren't familiar, the Old Testament is the part of the Bible that takes place before Jesus was born uh, in Bethlehem. The people of Israel, who were God's chosen people, they had a religious leader who was called the high priest. Now, they had some other priests and, that took care of various other, had other roles and duties and that kind of thing, but the high priest was sort of like the top of the line, cream of the crop, like head honcho kind of priest guy. Like That's who this guy was. And the high priest had a number of, of responsibilities. And one of the biggest responsibilities that the high priest had took place on the 10th day of the seventh month every single year. It was this annual thing that happened. Nowadays, it's, they, they celebrate it as the holiday called Yom Kippur. And it was, it, was, it was known as the Day of Atonement. And on that Day of Atonement, here's what the high priest would do. Before entering the tabernacle, the high priest was to bathe and put on special garments, then sacrifice a bull, as a sin offering for himself and his family. Then he was to bring two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And its blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat was used as a scapegoat. The high priest would place his hands on its head, confess over it the rebellion and wickedness of the entire nation of Israel, and sent that goat out with an appointed man who released it into the wilderness. The goat carried on itself all the sins of the people, which were forgiven for another year. So this process was known as the atonement process. It, was, it, was, it, was the, it took place once a year, and it was a, the way that the Israelites were able to become reconciled with God, with this perfect and holy God that had chosen them as his people. This was the way that they, they were able to, to become restored in relationship with him, to, to be 
to be righted, to be uh, back reconciled in relationship with God. It was the way that things between themselves and with God were made right, where uh, they got a clean slate or a fresh start. In Hebrews chapter 5, which is in your outline there, it says this, it says, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus once and for all, for all time and for all people, not just Jews, as, as we just talked about with the nation of Israel, but for all people, became the source of eternal salvation. So Jesus took on the, on the role of high priest who mediates the process of our reconciliation. And he stepped in and took the role of the, of the scapegoat, taking onto his head all the sins of all humanity for all eternity. So as followers of Jesus, when we talk about the good news of of Christ, this sacrifice, this atoning work of what Jesus did is a huge piece, the linchpin of what this good news is all about. We actually believe that God's love for humankind is so great that not only did he provide a way for us to be reconciled to him, but he actually stepped into that process and sacrificed himself once and for all so that we could be reconciled to him. We are loved by a generous God who surrendered himself for us and says, hey, I want to invite you to live a lifestyle of surrender as well. Hebrews chapter 4, there in your outline, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It says this, it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the cool thing, the good news about Jesus is that because of Jesus, you and I can approach God's throne of, throne of grace with confidence. We can come to God with our brokenness and our, our shame and our faults and our failures and our emptiness and receive a fresh start. We can receive a clean slate. We can receive forgiveness and acceptance and grace because of what Jesus did. Because of Jesus, we can echo the joy that we see in Zacchaeus' story of transformation. Inviting God to move us from greed and isolation to generosity and reconciliation. And because of Jesus, we can go all in with our time and our talents and our treasure as a way of displaying our trust in God's leadership. That's what worshiping God with open hands is all about. Surrender. So for the past 2,000 years or so, followers of Jesus have gotten together and they've, they've, they've gone through um, a particular act that symbolizes the fact that they remember what Jesus did for them. And it's called communion. And communion, which eating the bread and drinking, and drinking the cup, is a way of approaching God's throne of grace with confidence of remembering together all that Jesus went through on our behalf and once again allowing ourselves to be blessed by the incredible love that God has for each one of us. So participating in in the act of communion, when we take communion, it's a way for us to say that we're, 
We're recommitting to be people who live lives with open hands. We're saying to God, God, I remember your generosity. Jesus, I remember what you did for me, for us on the cross. And today, once again, I choose for the first time or for the millionth time to accept that generosity from you, to accept that sacrifice, and to live my life with open hands in worship to you. I want to invite our communion servers to to come on up, those of you guys who are going to be serving. Um, The worship team here in a minute is going to be leading us in a song. And as they do, I I want to invite you, uh, if you would like to take communion today, uh, to make this go a little bit smoothly, to actually come down the front, the middle aisle, and then go back to your seat around the outside. Come and get the bread and the cup, and then just take those back to your seat with you, and we'll take communion uh, together. And if you're here today, um, and you haven't made the decision to follow Christ, like you've, you've heard what we've talked about today, and you, you said, you know what, I'm just not there yet. Like I'm just, I, I just, just not a commitment that I'm ready to make. That's fine. We know that, that a lot of us were at all different points in our journey. I would just say that, that during this time of communion, if you just want to remain seated, uh, that's fine. So that, that those, of, those who, are wanting, who want to say again today, I'm committing uh, my life to you, Jesus, that they have the opportunity to, to do so. Uh, so the communion table is open as the worship team starts. Please feel free to come forward and get the elements. on water calm the raging sea you command the highest mountains fall upon their knees you're the one who welcomes sinners in your open blinded eye you restore the broken hearted and you brought the dead to life all our sins You remember all your promises You are
kindness and your mercy, you became the way for us, forgetting all our sins. You remember all your promises, and you are Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Father God, we thank you for your generosity. We thank you for 